Welcome back to this period of Bible study. Uh, the crisis continues, and so we're back online with our, our services this morning. And according to my calculations, this is the first Sunday of April, and so uh, I have been doing for about the last 30 years what I call a fundamental Sunday, and that just means uh, taking a very fundamental approach to God's Word. We talk about the nature of the church, the identity of the church, what to do to become a Christian. I saw no real reason to change that, and so if you're listening or watching this morning, we want you to join us in our Bible study, and we're going to begin doing that by looking at 2 Corinthians, or 2 Kings, rather, chapter 5, 2 Kings in the Old Testament, and it's the story of Naaman. Many of you have read and studied this account, and you know exactly all the players and what transpires and the various dynamics, but you also remember that Naaman was, was quite a man. He was commander of the Syrian army, highly favored by his master. He was a national hero. He was the kind of man that you would wake up in the, and, and pick up the newspaper off your front uh, lawn and, and read the headlines, and it would not be uncommon to have Naaman's name somewhere in that as, as a battle warrior, as a man who was, as I said, a hero to his people. Problem was with Naaman, if you recall, is that he was a leper, and that was an incurable disease. And money and power and popularity become relatively unimportant when you have an incurable disease. The only thing that really matters if you have that kind of situation is, is finding a medical breakthrough. I mean, you just tell us of any possibility, any option that might be able to address and cure this disease. Somehow we will get the necessary resources. We will get the money. We will travel the distance to see whether there is any viability to that, that possibility. And it was a long shot, to be sure. But the Bible says here in 2 Kings 5 that when Naaman's wife's little Israelite maid suggested that there was a prophet in Israel who could cure Naaman of his leprosy, the Bible says they started packing immediately. As a testament to the inspiration of Scripture, the Bible even tells us what it was that Naaman and his family packed. And the stash was impressive. Silver, gold, expensive clothes. There was even a special letter of introduction from the king. Surely that would persuade the prophet that they were going to see to do whatever it was that Naaman wanted him to do. But the Bible says it had perhaps a counterproductive result. Elisha, the prophet that they were going to see, was not the least bit impressed by all of this expensive stuff that Naaman and his family were bringing. In fact, the Bible tells us that he didn't even come outside. He didn't even come out to greet this gift-bearing guest. Instead, he sent his servant out. And he gave the servant a message to give to Naaman, and it was, in essence, a ridiculous cure. Here's what it says. Look down in verse 10. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 10 of chapter 5, 2 Kings. Go and wash. Here's the message. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And the Bible says that Naaman, as we used to say when I was a boy, pitched a hissy fit. I mean, he got mad. He spun away in a rage. This so-called prophet had to be putting him on. You see, Naaman was, again, a powerful and prominent man, and he was accustomed to pomp and circumstance. And the Bible says that he had already orchestrated the whole scenario in his own mind. Look at verse 11. Naaman is now confessing, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. That's how he had orchestrated all of this happening. But enough of this insult. Naaman spun away in a rage. He'd come here to be healed and not to have his intelligence impugned. But then a brave servant approached Naaman asking this. This is verse 13. 
My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Well, good question. And credit Naaman with being honest enough and humble enough to know that his servant had a legitimate point. So verse 14 says, So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And watch this. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now the reason that we're bringing up this great Old Testament account is to further illustrate and impress on our hearts the fact that the bottom line of this whole account is that it worked. And I'm here to announce to you this morning that God's plan, God's way always works. We just have to get past our own preconceived notions and to accept God's plan. Perfect New Testament example of that, by the way, is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, where some of the disciples of the Lord were out fishing. And the Lord told them, even though they had had no success, caught zero fish all night long. The Lord told them, go out and cast your, your nets on, and he even told the particular side of the boat that you need to do it on, and, and you'll catch some fish. Peter, of course, is the first one to respond. And, and Peter is probably thinking, this is all being calculated in his mind because Peter was not an unintelligent man. Lord, you are a great teacher. We're convinced that you're the Messiah, but we're the fishermen, and we know that fishing on the Sea of Galilee, if you haven't caught any fish at night, it's fruitless, futile, and worthless to try to go out in the morning time and catch fish. But then verse 5 contains this faith affirmation on Peter's part. For he says, nevertheless, at your will, we will. That is, at your word, we're going to do what you ask. And sometimes that's where we are in our own faith journey as well. I, I'm here to, to, to communicate to you this morning that God's plan for, for conversion is pretty simple as well. Maybe that's why we have so much trouble with it. It seems almost too simple. In fact, Paul makes this assertion in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25 in the opening letter to the Corinthians. He says, it pleased God by the foolishness of the message preached to save them that believe. That is, there are people then and still people today who think of the gospel, of the message of God, how to become a Christian and how to live as a Christian is absolute foolishness. But that's the simplicity of it. It doesn't have all the pomp and circumstance and ceremony. It's just a simple message of Jesus dying on the cross. Now, what are you going to do about it? Like Naaman, we have our own ideas about how conversion ought to come about, how it ought to happen. If only God would do something dramatic, you know. If he would perform a miracle, at least a still small voice, a compelling urge to point me in the right direction, then I would know that it's God's voice and it's the authority of God that's pointing me in that direction. But one thing is certain, conversion to Christ is absolutely critical. It is vitally important in Scripture. To see really how important, listen to the words of Peter. And this is Peter speaking in Acts 3 and verse 19. He says, repent you therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now that's not a very long statement, but it's a very meaningful statement because it's incredibly plain. The blotting out of, of sins, Peter says, rests upon two things, repentance and conversion. If there is no repentance and if there is no conversion, guess what? There, there is no forgiveness of sins. One day Jesus' disciples came to him asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'd like to tell you that that was the only time his disciples ever discussed that issue, that question, who's the greatest in the kingdom, but sadly it wasn't. This is just one of several times. 
But Jesus answered in the Matthew 18 account, verse 3, like this. He told his disciples, you're asking who's the greatest in the kingdom, and I'm telling you, except you be converted and become as little children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the Lord was telling his disciples that day, you're asking about the greatest in the kingdom, and I'm telling you that if men don't change their ways and convert their lives, they're not even going to get into the kingdom. And so the importance of conversion is already firmly established in Scripture. We, without it, we can't have forgiveness, and without it, we can't enter heaven. Now, since salvation is involved, we, we need to know what conversion is. We need to know what God's definition of conversion in His Word, what that is. Because the word in Scripture means to turn. The original word is used over 40 times in the New Testament alone. In the King James Version, that word is translated convert seven times and turn all the rest. And in some translations, like the RSV, it's translated as turn every single time. So we need to get that straight in our heads. Spiritual conversion also involves a turning. A turning from one course of life to another. A turning from one devotion and commitment in life to another. Everything has changed. We have done an about face. We have taken a 180 in our lives if we've truly been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when a person is converted, he turns from one course of thinking and action to another. Please don't miss that. And that turning, that conversion, the Bible specifically says each person must do for himself. Nobody else can convert for you. Nobody else can turn spiritually for you. That, that's been true ever since the day of Pentecost. You may remember that when Peter was standing up on behalf of the other apostles and preaching the first gospel sermon ever to be preached, in Acts 2 and verse 40, he said, Save yourselves from this wicked or untoward generation. You see, that's not something anybody else can do for you. You're going to have to save yourselves in the sense of responding appropriately to God's message and doing what God has called upon you to do in order to become his child and to have your sins forgiven. No person can be converted for another, even though there are times when we wish we could. There may be people who are watching this this morning who are thinking about someone in your family that you love very much and that if you could convert for them and become a Christian for them, You'd do it a thousand times over. You'd walk down any aisle in any church building in the world, confess your belief that Jesus is the Son of God, and be baptized for that, that lost husband or lost wife, lost son or daughter, or whoever it is that's in your mind right now. You'd do it for them, but you can't. We must save ourselves. We must work out our own salvation, Paul said, Philippians 2.12, with fear and trembling. Now, specifically, there are three separate distinct changes that constitute conversion to Christ. And no person has totally turned to the Lord, that is, has been converted until they have experienced all three of these changes. First of all, there's a change of heart. And let me also define Bible terms in Bible ways. The word heart, as it is used in Scripture, does not refer to that organ in our chest that pumps our blood. Most of us understand that. It refers to the mind of a person, the mental faculties, the seat of our reason. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, Solomon said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. In the New Testament, in Matthew 9, verse 4, Jesus said, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore, that is, why do you think evil in your hearts? So don't miss that. The heart in the Bible is the mind of man. 
And before conversion can take place, before each of us can become a child of God, there has to be a change of heart. But there also has to be a change of life. And thirdly, there has to be a change of relationship. And the gospel, and this is powerful and it's wonderful to know that the gospel pinpoints three distinct orders that will produce each of those three changes in our lives. The Bible says that faith changes the heart and repentance changes the life and baptism changes the relationship. I really would like for you to think about that with me for just a few minutes. None of these conditions can take the place of any of the other conditions. Here's what I mean by that. Faith changes the heart, but faith cannot and does not change either the heart or the life or the relationship. Repentance changes the life, but it does not change and cannot change either the heart or the relationship. And baptism changes the relationship. But baptism cannot and does not change either the heart or the life. Let me explain what I mean by those three changes uh, a little more specifically. To be converted, the Bible says a person must experience a change of heart. We've already noted that. And faith or belief is what produces that change. Suppose there's a person who doesn't believe in God. And that's not very difficult. More and more people are avowed atheists in our world today than ever before, even here in our nation. But here's a fellow who, who never really has given God a whole lot of thought. His unbelief is not based upon a careful study of Scripture and, and, and the facts of cosmogony, and, and that study has led him to the conclusion that there is no God. It's not really been an intellectual sort of quest for him at all. He's just never really given religion or God that much thought. And so that subject has never really been on his radar screen for very long. His parents were not religious people. He never received any religious training. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he hasn't given God a second thought. But there comes a time when that man, being an honest and sincere man, begins to wonder. He knows a lot of good people who believe in God, who in fact base their entire lives upon a relationship with this God. And in a way, it makes sense to this man. After all, this magnificent orderly universe had to come from somewhere. Reason alone tells him that behind all orderly design and construction, there is intelligence. He knows that the watch that he wears on his wrist is the result of careful planning and skillful craftsmanship. No one could convince him that it came from nowhere, that it all came to be, fell into place, works perfectly, keeps perfect time, and all of that is accidental. It came about just because of blind chance. Nobody could ever convince him of that. Nor could anyone convince him that the car that he drives came into being by accident. No, there had to be a designer, an engineer, and workers on an assembly line somewhere putting each piece of that car into its place so that it would operate properly. Then on his way to work, he drives by a construction project. There next to the highway, he sees a beautiful new 40-story building. And he begins to wonder, where did that thing come from? Did those tons of steel and concrete just begin working their way up out of the ground, each piece falling into place until that majestic building stood there complete and ready for use with no architect, no engineers, no workers, and of course he realizes that the answer to all of that is no way. The man who witnesses that scene is far too intelligent to be deceived by that kind of absurdity. And so now he begins broadening his perspective. And he begins looking at the intricate design and order of the universe. So exact and certain are the speed and the direction of the earth and the other planets that we can send men to the moon. 
Now, we've done that. We've done it on more than one occasion, so that's not really a big deal to the most of us. But you've got to remember that when the rocket leaves the surface of the earth, that where the moon is now is not where the moon is going to be when they get there. But we know exactly how that, that moon will move and at what speed so that we can know exactly where it will be so that when men place their feet upon on the moon, it will be because of those precise calculations. He understands how that works. And, and, and he looks at the stars and the trees and the flowers and the animals and the people, some 8 billion of us that occupy this planet, and he realizes this, this just couldn't have happened. There had to be an intelligent designer. Now, because he's not a student of the book, he doesn't know it yet. But there is a passage of Scripture that addresses the very experience that he is now going through. Hebrews 3, verse 4 says, Now, every house is builded by some man, but he who built all things is God. That's the causal argument. That's the design argument in a nutshell. And so it begins to look more objectively and sympathetically at the Bible's opening statement that says simply but powerfully, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he begins for the first time in his life reading his Bible. If the opening statement is true, then the rest just might be as well. And the Bible, as he continues to read, tells about God sending his son to save the world. And the man comes to the point where in his study and his evaluation of Christianity and, 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 and Godness that he can say honestly, I believe. I believe what the Bible says about God and about spiritual things and about the afterlife. And, and no doubt his heart has been changed by, by faith. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's the way it works for any man or woman of an accountable age. When we study or when we hear God's word, it can take seed in our heart, but that's what produces faith in our lives, an examination of the biblical evidence. Question, is this man converted simply because his his heart has been changed by faith? Well, some would say yes. But the Bible says no. The Bible says there's more in the conversion process. A change of heart amounts to very little unless there is a corresponding change of life. You know, when you think about it, that's really the theme, the premise of the five-chapter book of, of James. James is a practical book, but that's one of the reasons, because the, the theme of the book of James is if your religion doesn't change the way you act, then that religion is not worth two cents. Now, you're not going to find that language in the book, but that's the essence of it. And, and so what we believe has to make a difference in our life. If our hearts have been changed, there ought to be then a corresponding change in the way we live our lives. Several years ago, a national poll revealed at that time that 98% of those polled believed in the existence of God. But the same poll, don't miss this, the same poll reflected that only 28% of them said that God made any real difference in their lives. In other words, 70%, that's a huge number, 70% of those who said they believed in God said that that belief did not matter that they live their lives as if God did not exist. Would you say that even though they are believers in God, they are theists, that they've been really converted to him just because they believed in him? Well, neither would I, and, and neither would James. James says, if a man has faith, then he's as good as the demons. Even the demons believe and tremble, James 2, verse 19 says. So real conversion demands a change of life, a change of action. And that change is produced by sincere repentance. So remember what we've been talking about. 
Uh, faith comes by looking and examining the evidence. And faith can change our hearts or our minds. But our lives are changed only by sincere repentance. Think of the man that we, we've been discussing earlier. His conviction of the existence of God leads him to a heartfelt repentance. He changes his life. And the change is evident to everyone. I mean, his family, his friends, his co-workers realize that something is going on with this guy. That, that things are changing, not just in his mindset, but in his, in his life, in his actions, in his behavior. His language is different. His conduct is different. His interests are different. His life has changed. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Question, is he converted at that point? Some would say yes. At the moment that he repented and changed his life, that man had been converted to Christ. But the Bible says no, there's more. There must also be a change of relationship. Remember as we established in the beginning of this lesson that this is a changed man. No one in their right mind would ever question but he simply must not stop short in the conversion process because there has not yet been a change of relationship. And God designed baptism to produce that change. Now we need to be very clear about this. We don't need to be over-teaching and over-preaching what baptism can do. Sometimes people leave that impression. As long as I go get immersed in a baptistry or a river or any kind of body of water where I can be immersed in, then, then I'm good with God. I'm good to go no matter how I live from that point forward. The Bible, the Bible didn't teach that. But the Bible does teach that baptism is the point in which our relationship to the Lord has changed. Baptism doesn't change the heart. As we've seen, that's changed only by faith. Baptism doesn't even change the life because that's changed by sincere repentance. Baptism, however, does change our relationship to God because God designed it to do that very thing. And by the way, that accounts for one of the things that puzzles us. I'm just going to be absolutely honest with you right here. We can see some many wonderfully good moral people who have never been baptized. And, and we can see some rascals, I mean some pretty bad people who at one point in their lives has been baptized. And why is that? Well, that's because... What God's Word teaches is true. Baptism doesn't make a person good. Baptism does not change either the heart or the life. You see, if a person who's baptized, whose heart has not been changed by faith, whose life, conduct, behavior has not been changed by repentance, he's not going to be any better after baptism than he was before baptism. Even when John saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, here's how he responded. And this is in the Bible. You can read it for yourself. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He said to those men, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. Here these men had apparently come to, to John thinking that there was some kind of magic in baptism that would save them without them really having to change their hearts or their lives. And John said, you need to think again. Baptism simply will not do what faith and repentance are designed to do. Nor will faith and repentance do what baptism is designed to do. And we must not miss that. You see, in Scripture, baptism is an act of transition. It remits our sins and it transfers us from one state into another. Paul said it like this in Colossians 1.13. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It puts us into Christ, where all spiritual blessings are, Romans 6, 
verse 3 says. And Galatians 3.27 reads like this, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, there's this transitional term, into Christ have put on Christ. And all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Every single one of them. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Allow me to illustrate these biblical principles and then we will be through with this study. Our conversion to Christ is, in a sense, like marriage. And I'm not uncomfortable using that as an illustration of our spiritual relationship to God because Paul does the exact same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. He's basically saying, the closest that I can think of in earthly terms to describe a Christian's, a child of God's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is to talk about the close, intimate relationship between a husband and his wife. And so I want to do that with this illustration. Boy meets girl. They like each other. They begin spending a lot of time together. And that's the way that most relationships that are healthy work. Hearts began to throb. And before long, that relationship has progressed to the point where they are in love. And, and the young man asks her to marry him, and she says, oh my, yes. Well, they've experienced a change of heart. Well, let me ask a question. Are they married? Well, of course not. A change of heart is essential to a good relationship and to a good marriage, but it's not enough. And then there comes a visible change in the lives, the behavior of these two people. They act differently than before. Their interests change. They have eyes only for one another. When they're apart, guess who they're thinking about? They're thinking about that young man or that young woman. I mean, they are obsessed in a way with, that, with a relationship that they have with that person. A radical change of life is apparent to anyone who can see through a ladder. Their lives have been changed by that relationship. Question, are they married now? Absolutely not. A change of life is essential to a good marriage, but it's not enough. In fact, if you meet someone and talk to them and they're about to get married and they think in whatever deluded way that they think that marriage is not going to change their life, then you can mark it down. They're not ready to get married. Marriage changes our lives. It ought to. But it takes more than just a change of, of heart and a change of life for two people to be married. Then there comes a time and an appointment is made and a ceremony is performed. There comes a point in the ceremony when the preacher or the justice of the peace or whoever's officiating says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Question, are they married now? You better believe they are. When were they married? Was it when their hearts changed? No. Was it when their lives, their behavior changed? Well, no. They were married when the relationship changed. The ceremony, watch this closely, the ceremony changed neither their hearts nor their lives but it did change their relationship. They walked into that building as an engaged couple and they walked out of the building as a married couple. So with that in mind, let me ask you this question this morning. Have you been sincerely and genuinely converted to Christ? It's important that all three of these changes that we've discussed this morning take place. Has faith changed your heart? Has sincere repentance changed your life, your behavior? And has baptism changed your spiritual relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is the author of our salvation, and we have to allow him to state the conditions of it. And he said that if any man comes to God, he must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek after him. That is, faith is absolutely necessary for even approaching God. Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 6, Except you believe that I am he, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. So faith is necessary in our conversion to Jesus Christ. 
God also said that repentance is absolutely critical. Listen to Luke 13. Verse 3 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And for, uh, he, That's Acts 3 verse 19. And verse 5 of, of Luke 13 says the same thing. Repent and be converted. Baptism is also spoken of in Scripture and specified every time in the book of Acts as the point in which our relationship to Jesus Christ has changed. On the day of Pentecost, the Bible says in verse 37 that those who were convicted that they were the ones responsible for crucifying and killing the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They said that with some sense of consternation. And the Bible says that Peter's reply in verse 38 was, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Even Saul of Tarsus, later to be the Apostle Paul, was told the same thing by Ananias. Why tarriest thou? The King James says, What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22 and verse 16. And then Peter in his first letter says, The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience before God. That is, baptism doesn't somehow clean us physically, but he gives us a good conscience because we know that we've done exactly what God has commanded in order to approach him and to become his children and to have our sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So all I'm saying this morning is that you can know whether or not you have been converted and whether or not you are in a saved condition as surely as you can know whether or not you're married. I have occasion and have had occasions in my preaching life to be able to speak in various places, sometimes on the other side of the world and sometimes right here in the southeast and around the United States. But every time I go to a place that I have never been before and have the opportunity to be able to meet some wonderful people, I always, you know, ask them their names and try to learn something about them. And I've never asked anyone this question. So are, are you married? And have anyone ever respond, well, you know, I don't really know. No, you know if you're married or not. You know that if you've met the conditions of law, that if you've gone through the ceremony, you know whether or not you are in a married state, and you can know as surely whether or not you have been converted, whether or not you've been saved from your sins, because the Bible makes it that clear. And as Paul said to the Corinthians, God is not an author of confusion. Now, there, there's a problem sometimes even in, in our churches. There are those who have been baptized, but whose heart and life have never really been changed. And therefore, they've, they've never really been converted. So all of us need to rethink this subject in the sense of making absolutely certain that we're doing not what some man says or some woman has said or what some preacher has said. We, we need to make sure that we're doing exactly what God has said in his word. Study the book of Acts, read it carefully, scrutinize it, and then I think you'll come away with the same conclusions that we have drawn this morning. I want to end with a story that has meant a great deal to me over the years about a young man who had contracted oral cancer. And it was due to no fault, no behavior of his own, but nonetheless he had been diagnosed with oral cancer and uh, was, was scheduled for surgery to have his larynx, his voice box, removed. That meant, especially in those days, that he would never be able to speak again. And... and as he was lying there on the gurney in the prep room waiting to go into surgery, there was a kind nurse who realized that at the tender age of 19, this young man was going to go into surgery, have his voice box removed, come out of surgery, and never be able to speak again with his natural voice. And that just kind of hit her like a ton of bricks. So she walked over to the bedside of that young man, held his hand, and said, Is there anything 
that you would like to see before you go into surgery. He tried to live his life faithfully as a child of God. And so he lifted his head from that gurney and with tears in his eyes, he said this, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And that's my message to you this morning. Thank you for joining us for this period of study. Let's end with prayer. Father, we're grateful for the way that you bless us each day. Your mercies are new every morning. And as we grow in Christ, we become more acutely aware of how you bless us, even in these troubled times, even as we see sickness and sorrow and death around us. We know that we are a blessed people. Father, see us through this crisis. Help us to learn to depend upon you and to spend time as we are quarantined, many are, and, and we are experiencing the social distancing that we're experiencing. Help us to, to really focus on what matters. May we spend some quality time with our families and, and doing those things that really count in life and not just the trivial. Help us, Father, to refocus because of what we're experiencing in these weeks and perhaps in the weeks to come. Thank you for blessing us in every way, but most of all, we thank you for the salvation that comes in the name of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.